The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. Welcome into episode 10. Believe it or not, we have reached the 10th episode of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson. I'm coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I want to thank everyone who's reached out, sent me emails or messages on social media. Um, so I got some great um, guest suggestions and some uh, topics for future discussion and also just some nice feedback. I appreciate it. appreciate you all. I haven't gotten back to you yet. I will. And if you have any uh, suggestions for the show, please shoot them over to Mike at drumfactordirect.com or you can send me a DM on Instagram. It's Mike Dawson Drums or hit me up at the Drum Factor Direct Instagram page, which I monitor regularly. Um, like I said, I've got a bunch of questions and I will be creating a question and answer segment in for the show, but not this week because we have a nice long hour conversation with Gunnar Olsen. If you're not familiar with Gunnar, he is a New York City based drummer. One of my favorites, he is, he's coming from the, like me, coming from the Dave Grohl school, but he's got a lot of power and a lot of finesse and a great touch and a beautiful sound. Um, he's one of my favorite drummers and I've gotten to know him a little bit just through Instagram initially. And then I started following his career. Uh, it's pretty crazy. He's got Google Dolls on his discography. He's got Bruce Springsteen on his discography. And most recently, he's been playing with Pucifer, which is Maynard James Keenan of the band Tool. That's his project, one of his projects. Um, really awesome. They did a couple live streams that were fantastic. And he's also, Gunner's also on, I believe, the latest record. Um, existential reckoning so check that out it's fantastic uh, we talk about everything gear and just career what's happening what the future is he's also involved in some really really creative um, kind of cutting edge approach to being a session drummer for um, Facebook and YouTube so it's a lot of cool stuff to talk about he's got a few drums to share with us so let's just get to it here it is Gunner Olson. All right, Gunnar Olson, thank you for coming on my new podcast, Drum Candy. Um, first of all, are you back in New York? I'm back in New York. I'm back in uh, Brooklyn, New York. I'm moving um, apartments. Oh, there's some New York there's horns. There's some New York for you right now. <laughs> yeah, you might at some, I live right across, I currently live across the street from a park, so at some point we might hear like an ice cream truck for like an hour. <laughs> That's always fun when you're like trying to record Excellent. like vocals or like a podcast and it's like... Uh, but yeah, I live I live in uh, Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and I'm moving to another part of Greenpoint. So I'm kind of not that you can really see too much of my ap apartment, but it's a mess right now. Yeah, well, I'm new to Pittsburgh, and I still have an office that looks like a junkyard. So I've been here six months, yeah, and I haven't uh, even gotten close. Are you in ready. Pittsburgh proper, or what's the town? It is Churchill, which okay. is one of the eastern boroughs. Nice. So I've got some space, which is cool. Moving from a uh, very dense New Jersey to a little bit of space has been a welcome, welcome surprise. And you spent some time in Maine this past year. Yeah, I was up in Maine for 10 months during the majority of the pandemic. And um, yeah, we're at my wife's parents' house. And it's not the biggest house, but it was, yeah, we just, we had to get out of the city and just kind of, um, I don't know. It was kind of a good excuse. It's like a we went up there in July, and it's the kind of place you want to go in the summer. But I'm usually playing gigs or on tour, so it was this. It was this rare opportunity to just kind of go up there and just do nothing, and not yeah. worry about am I going to get a call for something and have to jet back down to the city. So that was pretty cool, and I honestly missed that a lot. You know, now that all the like shows are starting to get announced and like the anxiety of life is starting to trickle back in. I just like, <laughs> I didn't, I kind of liked everybody having just the fact that everyone was doing nothing was this nice calm. Like, yeah. Um, and then obviously the downside was the fear that life would never go back to normal and people were dying and all that awful stuff. Yeah. How is New York now? I haven't been there since November and it was, pretty ghostly when I left. Yeah. Is it coming back to life? It is. Yeah. I was coming back usually once a week every month to like do a little bit of remote recording or just play the drums a little bit. And every time we came back until 
February was just this ghost town of just everything closed. You know, you go into the city and things are boarded up and just, it, it was very eerie. It felt very like I am legend or these movies mm-hmm. where it's like the whole city is there, but no one's around. And I grew up in Times Square. So just to go to Times Square and, and see just, you know, be able to see 15 people at a time just was mind blowing. Uh, but yeah, it's, I think New York's doing really well. I, I think everyone's taking the vaccination stuff really seriously. Yeah. And, um, you know, I live in kind of a remote neighborhood in Greenpoint where there's not a lot of foot traffic. It's mostly families, and I live across the street from a park, and people are have their masks. People that I, I noticed, most people were like kind of holding their masks to like say, hey, I'm aware that masks are mm-hmm. a good idea, but I'm currently not wearing it. And if you want me to go into your store, I'll put it on. But um, it's this kind of hybrid of it's starting to feel like back to normal. But then, yeah. you know, it's not quite there. But yeah, it's starting to feel starting to feel real again. I don't know. I mean, I've I've lived kind of my adult life as a hermit, so it really didn't change a whole lot except for gigging. Yeah, um, same. So, what is what is your? Because you were doing a lot of like recording, remote recording, and then recently doing some shows. You know, what's the balance now? Is there going to be some touring adding back into your world? Or are you going to stay away from that scene? I'm not sure, to be totally honest. Um, I do have a few festivals I've been offered with a band. So that's, it's exciting to have some stuff on the calendar, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, I've been playing mostly with Pussifer for the last year, and we've been mostly doing live streams. And that seems to be kind of the plan moving forward. If we're going to do any kind of performance, it would probably be that over touring. We kind of missed our touring window. We were supposed to tour in like April and then do some festivals in June and all that stuff got canceled. Mm -hmm. And Maynard does so many things that he's just pretty booked just in life. He has to do harvest for his wineries and then he has two other bands. Um, So... I'm not, I haven't heard, you know, if we're doing any touring stuff this year, it kind of looks like maybe not, but, um, yeah, there's things like, you know, when I have free time, there are, there's a fun band I play with called the Dexter Lake Club Band. It's a bunch of guys who play in indie bands and start playing weddings for fun. And then it actually kind of took off and they turned into a wedding band. So (laughs) I have like five to 10 weddings offered to me if I want to play them which is just bizarre. Just the idea of going to a tent with 50 to a hundred people is a little terrifying still, but, um, they still behind a kit and you can hide. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I might play some like, honestly, like the idea of just like playing any kind of gig is sounds so appealing right now. Like I would, I would I, like, I kind of want to go play a wedding. <laughs> yeah. Is that um, like, like traditional wedding, like Casey and the Sunshine Band, and no, like our our whole angle is that we're we're the rock band that kind of comes and crashes the wedding, and that's what people hire us for. So we're playing, you know, a lot of '80s, a lot of indie rock stuff, a lot of Beatles, Rolling Stones, like raw fun, like the stuff mm. that, like, when you see a, a cover band, you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like we try to do that side of things, like play just you know, fun Motown stuff, but a little punkier with a little bit of a white dude aggression. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. So I want to dig right into the Pussifer gig. Yeah. And since this is a show all about gear, I want to know how you went about learning these songs, which were heavily programmed in a lot of ways, or at least produced. Yeah. What's the what's the process for unpacking that and then applying it to the live kit? Because when you perform this stuff on the live streams, it just sounded like a rock band. Yeah. But yet you were producing the parts that were pretty darn close to what's on the record. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. It's um, the record we the record I'm on a little bit is their last record called Existential Reckoning, and that was the the first live stream we did was basically playing their brand new record the day it came out, which was mm. just kind of a lot to unpack. And so I think the hardest part of that was, you know, a lot of bands have been, we're not the first band to do a live stream by any means, but a lot of bands when they play live, I think some of the 
some of the fun part about seeing a band that you love live is they're going to probably find things to either switch up just because the songs have evolved or maybe there's a super electronic part, but when they get to it, they kind of like, maybe they break it down to just a kick drum or they do something different live that they're mm -hmm. not trying to recreate the record. But, you know, this was because the record and the live stream were coming out the same day, they had to be kind of on par with each other. Like we couldn't do a totally different version of a song that someone's never heard. Right. We wanted yeah. to be very true to the sound of it. And yeah, there's, I mean, I would say the record is probably 80% programming and then all the real drums are super cut up, manipulated, and then layered with other electronic samples. So it's just this total hybrid of, you know, it almost feels like the drum machine is the drummer and then the like live drum parts are kind of like the percussionist. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the way I looked at it. I just step back and you say, okay, what are the sounds that are the most important? Let's maybe put those on like a kick trigger and a snare trigger. And we definitely didn't want to have me playing like an SPDS because mm. I, I'm sorry. It's, it's no one, no one's getting like pumped to see a drummer playing SPDS live. Um, <laughs> it's just not, I don't know. I, that's a whole other conversation uh, and maybe yeah. a personal preference, but you know, there was times where I had to play pads and so we ha I had a couple of those, um, I think like PD8, like rolling, mm, just real simple things. round yeah. things. And I really tried to like, you know, there's a few half of songs where I'm on that. And then maybe the second half of the song, I would then either move those sounds to playback or triggers and then maybe play it on like a floor, t play the kick part on a floor tom that's super muffled with a trigger. So you're still hearing the electronic kick sound, but now you have a little texture from the floor tom mm -hmm. and it just kind of like kicks it up a little bit of a notch where now you're starting to hear some air, some, you know, stuff you can have in the overhead mics that just add a, a human element to it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I had like a side snare that I would keep like a cut up symbol on and just n nothing like rev, you know, revolutionary that people haven't been doing, but finding, you know, stacks that, sound kind of white noisy that match with electronic claps that add. So when you hear it, it sounds, it adds this liveness to it, but you're not missing the fundamental sound of something. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but I mean, I, I had to listen to that record for maybe three weeks all day, every day before I even sat down behind a kit. Okay. Just so you to kind had of it memorized in your subconscious a bit. Yeah, I, I've never, I've, I only, made, I've, I've only made charts like twice in my life, and both times I've regretted it. I just, mm. there was one time I went to the studio and I said, "I'm going to be a pro drummer," and I made these charts, and I was just glued to them, and I was messing up, and I, and I stopped, I stopped the song, and I said, "Can I just listen to this like four times mm. in a row? You know, can we take like ten minutes?" And ever since then, I just, I just listen and listen and listen. Cause that's what I did when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I would listen to and justice for all or nevermind or pork soda and just, and just, yeah. you know, I just listened to these songs so much played along on my pad kit. And then I just knew all the parts, you know, I, it, I tried to learn them, but it just kind of, yeah. if you, if it seeps into your system, it's really in there. And I find that's better too, because I can learn the songs. I can listen to them. I mean, the play counts on these songs were like in the forties and fifties, each song just like, man, I listened to them so much that when I got out to LA and Matt, the musical director, guitarist, if he wants to change an idea, I'm not like, wait, what part of the song? Like I know exactly what he's talking about. Mm. So I don't know. For me, it just works that way. It, it takes a little longer, but it just, it, it feels more musical when I'm, where it feels like I'm playing along to the song that I love that I know rather than trying to remember or like read a chart. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Like, it kind of puts you as a, almost like a band member state of mind right away. Like those are your songs right. owning them. Yeah. And I think because the other thing about Pussifer, if, you know, if people here know the band or don't know the band, it's, um, it's these very deceivingly hard parts where it's not that it's, it's not, techie in the sense where it's like this independence challenge of like, how are they playing all this? It's, it's this concept of like, it always seems to be a, a groove for like three bars. And then the fourth bar 
it's a different kick part. And then it goes back to the first thing for two more bars and then four bars of the, it just always seems to change just enough that it keeps it interesting and feels kind of random, but Mm -hmm. it's all super intentional. And the times I would try to be like, Oh, this part, I'll just keep it like this. So many of the bands always like, Oh, you missed that thing in the second verse. I'm like, you mean the one extra kick, you know? (laughs) Um, so, you know, stuff like that. I, I really learned to appreciate because I've, I've kind of evolved from like a, I don't know. I think when you're younger and you start to play the drums, you know, like you're playing along to Nirvana or whatever, you're learning yeah. these, vi- like Dave Grohl was a parts guy. He plays these drum parts. And I think that's some of the magic of him. And I mm-hmm. think as I've evolved as a drummer, I tend to kind of play a little more in the moment. You know, there's things I'm going to play every night the same, maybe on tour with like Big Data or Mother Feather bands I've been in for a while. Um, But there's always these sections of songs I kind of let the moment or the night kind of dictate what I'm going to play. And it's not Mm going to be super different, but it's not going to maybe be the exact same fill. Or maybe instead of a ride, I might do the hi-hat. Maybe it just feels more like that's where it's going. And this gig with Pussifer definitely was like, you got to play these parts. <laughs> and I think because I kind of switched away from that for a few years, it made it a little harder too. Um, and also like it was a pandemic. I, I was up in Maine. I wasn't playing the drums that much. Mm. So to get this really drum heavy gig, um, it really felt like running a marathon after not going to the gym for 10 months. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So when you get to your drums, how do you start piecing it together instrument wise? you just have a core kit that you started with or was it all just experimenting the whole time? I've the last like five years I've been playing with more electronic bands like big data or Fisher Spooner where I kind of expanded my kit a little bit with like a second pair of hi-hats that I keep super tight or like a stack on like I kind of started to have this kit that was working well for these moments when I know I want to go a little more electronic sounding. So I kind of started with that kit in mind mm-hmm. and um you know it's kick snare two toms i have a second hi-hat and then right next to the second hi-hat i have a usually a 16 inch stack of some sort and um but the pussifer stuff has very little symbols so mm. i knew i didn't really need to have really any symbols but i wanted to have something because it just feels really weird <laughs> to not have a crash symbol so I ended up for the first live stream just having one crash to my right, like a crash. I got a crash ride, my first crash ride ever from Zildjian. Just I was like, well, it literally says crash and a ride. I can just do both <laughs> on it. Um, and I was like, you know, it's a 20 inch, which is like super small for me for a ride, but it, it was it has just enough of a bell sound that I was like, well, it's it's there if I need it, and it's kind of out of the way. Um, but what that meant is I didn't have a crash next to my hi-hat slash, you know, rack tom. So I had all this like kind of real estate available. And um, Matt really loves those uh, Peter Engelhart Reco Recos. Oh, right. Yeah. It's like this kind of, if if you haven't seen one, it it basically looks like a longer cowbell. And then on the bottom, it has these two large springs. Um, I guess some people play it upside down. So you hit the spring, but it, it has this very like, to me, it sounds like Matt Chamberlain, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's just like that kind of Birdman meets like, I'm a drummer, but I'm also playing percussion sound, mm-hmm. which is cool. And so not having a crash cymbal, like right to my left where it normally would be, I was able to put one of those there. And then another, um, he also, Peter Engler also makes this kind of, um, ribbon crasher that is the loudest thing ever. It's like, I, I think a lot of people are familiar with those, um, is it L- oh, the rhythm? Yeah. Rhythm the rhythm tech. Rhythm tech. Yeah, yeah. 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 So like, this is like, if you, it, this sounds like if you ran it through an amp, it's just so oh loud and has all this low, <laughs> it's like too loud. It's like, I got it when I was maybe, I think I got it when I was, I don't know, 2003 or four. And it was always like the loudest thing on my kit. I just couldn't use it because I wanted, I couldn't use it in the studio. It was just way too loud, but it was, it was kind of perfect. Cause I only hit it like three times in this live stream. When you hit it, just like, it's as loud as a stack, but it, it, it takes up like no space. Um, 
so yeah, just listened. Like I said, I had to listen to that record like 40 or 50 times each song. And, you know, I, because I had, I was up in Maine without a kit, I was just driving around listening to the songs and, it, and I, it, I started to just like kind of picture like where, what would I do for a kit for this? Um, you know, for the, on my floor, Tom, I had a, uh, a trigger. So there's moments where if I wanted to, to trigger like a kick sound, I would trigger it on my floor, Tom, mm -hmm. um, which was fun. Cause then you can do a floor, Tom snare thing and then add your actual kick as another layer. Mm -hmm. Um, and like have the trigger off on the kick. So then it's like live sounding kick triggered sounding floor, Tom, um, I don't know, just stuff like that. It just, uh, I think that's to answer your question. <laughs> So what about snare jump selection? Did you did you try a bunch of options, or was it one you just went with and it worked? So or do you make it work? Do you make a drum work? What's, so what's your the the arguably the coolest part of this gig was going into it. Um, I knew that Jeremy Berman was going to be my drum tech, and Jeremy makes cue drums. Mm -hmm. And Jeremy and Matt, the guitarist of Pussifer, have known each other. I think since the early two thousands, they were both techs on Nine Inch Nails. So okay. Jeremy has kind of been Nine Inch Nails' main drum tech since the early 2000s. And, you know, he built Ilan Rubin's kit, and then he moved on to Muse, and he built Dom Howard's kit. Um, and actually, he built... The first Q drums he ever built were for Matt Mitchell to use in Pussifer. Oh, okay. So cool. they just, like, basically, like, Jeremy was working at uh, Orange County Percussion and started trying to, like... He had the idea like to make metal drums with wooden re-rings. Mm -hmm. And Matt Mitchell from Pussifer was the first guy saying, like, hey, could you try this? Could you try using copper? So the whole reason like Jeremy has a copper series of Q drums is because Matt was like, hey, have, wh why not try a copper kit? And so mm, all wow. the stuff Pussifer yeah. has ever done uh, since Matt's been in the band, he's used Jeremy's drums. So he brought Jeremy on to be the drum tech which was just exciting. I've known Jeremy for years and I have a couple of his snare drums, but I, you know, I wasn't quote unquote an artist by any means, but you know, I was really excited to kind of, you know, in my mind, I was thinking like one of these days I'm going to probably have a Q drum kit. Like Jeremy's mm -hmm. a great guy. They look cool. So this was great. Um, so they basically, I showed up two days into production and they had set up a kit they had already like tried out like four or five snares. Matt is super hands-on with the sound. So when I showed up, like there was the kit was set up there, like that's what we're using, which was cool. great because it <laughs> sounded it was a mahogany kit and this big brass snare. And I just got to sit down and like having like it was the first time I've had like a world-class like drum tech tuner, just like yeah. there you go. And you sit down and you're just like it just made me really appreciate the whole idea of like how you tune your drums and you know, you could, I could say so much stuff about Jeremy. He's a great hang. Um, yeah. he prides himself in like, if he sets up a drum kit every night, it, you don't have to move it. You know, I've had a few bands where I've had someone set up my kit and then you sit down and you had to like, you know, you're going to move the rack Tom. And mm -hmm. you know, we did these sh the, sh the, the filming we did for the live stream was out in the desert and our first shoot, the first song we played of the whole thing, we started at five in the morning and long dumb story i ended up showing up late because my i slept through my alarm like like just oh like like the stuff you have nightmares about like i showed up and like everyone's oh, yeah. like in place like we got like we're <laughs> oh, we're starting in five minutes and i'm like are you kidding me like <laughs> this is like the thing we've been working on for like a month of rehearsals and like and so i literally had to run to the drum kit like i'm half awake we're performing in sunglasses at 5 a.m like it's pitch black <laughs> And I sit down on my kid. I like put in my, I like, like scrambling to put in my in-ears, you know, and they're like, you ready? Gunner, you ready? And I'm like, I just look at, I haven't even like hit a drum. And I just look at the drum kit. And my first thought was like, oh, this looks pretty good. And then like, all, <laughs> next thing I know, I'm like hearing the count in and now we're rolling. And um, like, I didn't even have time to think about like, are the drums in the right place? Like he just, you know, that's what he does. So, uh, thanks to Jeremy for saving my ass on that one. But yeah, he, Holy smokes, yeah, that's stressful. <laughs> yeah. Just like, are you kidding me with this? Um, so yeah, for the first live stream I use, he's got this mahogany kit. He calls the shop beater, which like 
all of his drummers have played. There's like videos of like Alon Rubin playing it and Tucker Rules played it on stuff with Thursday. And it's just a great kit. Like immediately I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm a Q artist now because I'm going to be doing these live streams and these drums sound amazing. And I have this great friendship now with Jeremy. So yeah, put your order in now. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Um, so yeah, it, they made my life. I mean, to take out of the equation, like, what do I play on this? Like, I brought some cymbals. He also had all these Zildjian cymbals that, like, were perfect sounding. And so the fact that those guys really knew the sounds of everything and I could just focus on playing, it was really great because, you know, I think one of the... A lot of drummers have fallen into the remote recording thing in the pandemic. You know, I, yep. I had been doing it for a few years before, which set me up pretty nicely to, like, be able you know... March and April of last year, I got the most remote work I'd ever gotten before, mm-hmm. um, which was exciting, but also daunting because I've never, I've always felt like a bit of a hack engineer, you know, like engineering my drums. And now I'm sending, you know, I, I feel good working in the computer and, and producing and mixing, but now I'm on like Sweetwater, like buying more mics and more mic cables yeah. and like, yep dealing with phase and just um so after like a whole summer of exclusively working by myself and trying to like just get usable sounds to send people that i feel good about but like you know there's always in the back of my mind like what am i doing mm-hmm. um it just felt really good to like show up to a gig where all i had to do was just perform and just focus on, on what to play and um I don't know. It, that was an amazing experience. So were they tuned like drastically different than what you normally would do? What what was his secret? I'm sure Jeremy won't mind us spilling the secret. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of it is I've I've realized I I tend to over muffle the drums as a crutch sometimes where mm-hmm. I just okay. can't like totally get a drum to sound I find the hardest thing about drums and the most impressive thing about drum tuning is when you can have a dr- drum that's open, that sounds good. And mm-hmm. I, I start to go, I start to get in the weeds with like overtones and just like, I want to hear the drums breathe, but like maybe on my snare, I just don't want to hear a pitch, you know? Mm-hmm. And he, what I, you know, one of the things he, I learned from him is he was tuning the floor tom so much higher than I would ever tune it. Mm. And it felt really, it, I had to kind of get used to it because at first I was just like, I kept being like, Hey, can we tune this lower? And he was like, he's like, it's a floor Tom. It's not a kick man. And he, he kind of kept, he's like, John Bonham, listen to his floor Tom, man. They're not there. It's not like this low thuddy thing. And I would play it. And I just kind of was like, I gave in. I said, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to trust everybody. Cause you know, Matt's listening to the recordings every night and everyone's yeah. saying this kit sounds great. And then I'd film it with my GoPro and I'd back away tw- or I'd have him play the kit and go 20 feet away. And it's like, Oh, these drums sound perfect. And mm. so it really, it kind of messed me up. Cause I, I was starting to like feel pretty confident about my tuning. And then I realized the way it feels and sounds right when you're at the kit, can really mean so many different things if you're like 20 feet away or how does it sound recorded? Um, mm-hmm. How is it working with the bass? How is it working with these loud guitars? So I would say I, 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 I have been trying to embrace more um, just keeping stuff, keeping needless stuff off of my drums if possible. Mm-hmm. You know, like I stopped using Moon Jell a few years ago, but I've been using like the snare weight um, M80s, which I love mm-hmm. and are pretty great because when you hit the drum, they kind of bounce off like for a split mm-hmm. second. But, you know, I was just getting into the habit of putting them on the drums before I even like heard them, you know? And I was using um, a lot of the big fat snare drum stuff because we were, we were switching song to song and it was just nice to like be able to dampen stuff. And when I showed up, they're like, you don't need to put all this stuff on the, on the drums on every song. You know, on some stuff it was really cool, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I started to kind of trust him more and learn to kind of just like trust my ears and just, it's just, I don't know, just kind of get used to the sound of open drums again and try to get better at, at deciphering what sounds good if it's open, you know? 
I wonder if that's a side effect of us having to play in smaller rooms in the past decade or so, because drums sound, you know, a little yeah. bit hard to listen to in a small room. Yeah. I know it's for me. My studio's always been small, so like I can't do the big I know. open resonant thing. Yeah, my studio in, in Brooklyn's pretty small, too. And, and I think that's a good point. Like, I... I look back to like my touring formative early days. I didn't put anything on my drums, you know, and I never mm. thought twice about it. And maybe in the studio, somebody would help me like figure out how to get the sound. Um, but then when I started playing like these wedding gigs or like at Rockwood Music Hall and stuff, like you can't just like, that was a whole learning game. Like when I started becoming more of like a freelance drummer, you know, I always prided myself on being the loudest drummer on a gig, <laughs> right, you know, because right. like I, I, you know, I'll have a, I have a, we were, you know, we were going to talk about like our first snare drums. I, I found some yeah. great pictures of myself in like a basement in like 2001 with my old <laughs> punk band playing my first snare drum. And, you know, like back then, the only thing going through a PA was maybe vo was, was vocals. You know, there was no miking mm. the kit. And the only way I felt like you sounded pro was if you were the loudest band, especially if you were yeah. the loud, you had to be the loudest drummer in like a punk band to like really st yeah. stand out. So yeah, I mean, I, I had to relearn how to play the drums probably from 2008 to even now, just like, how do I, how do I feel comfortable? Cause I, I feel more confident playing the drums if I dig in. Mm-hmm. And I, that was such a part of my identity. So when I realized, well, I need to keep working and this isn't going to be the appropriate way to play for everything. So how can I play softer, but still look cool? Mm -hmm. And, um, that's hard. <laughs> so tea towels over top of everything, tape the symbols up. Yeah. I mean, I do love those roots EQ, like full covered tea towel, like Ringo sounding things. Those are great for like when you want to just play if you have to play a gig at a smaller place, but not totally hit like hot rod level, mm -hmm. you know, like I don't own a pair of hot rods. If you want that, yes. if you want Thank that, you. <laughs> if you want, like if you want that guy, just hire somebody else. Uh, I'm happy to like, I'm happy to like try to play quieter. I mean, even Dave Grohl barely gets a pass for playing hot rods. You know, I don't like that record because of that. I hate the sound of that. Those things. I know that record is classic, but like I can't listen to Nirvana Unplugged. I can't. Yeah, it's not Dave Grohl. It's not. <laughs> I, I like it, but I know what you're saying. I, th I think when it came out, I was a little like, "What?" Yeah, his hair's yeah, in a ponytail. Just rocked out when they when they played, and Allison Chain just kind of rocked. Well, out it's funny you say that because the Pearl. I bought the Pearl Jam record because of their Unplugged. Yeah, and then I was, too. and then I didn't like it. I don't the sound the sound of that first record. Uh, what is it? Ten. 10, yeah. It's kind of a, I don't know. I, I don't want to start a thing. I'm not the biggest Pearl Jam fan, but I was, I, re I remember really liking the Unplugged and the energy of it and the extended version of like Porch and then like listening to like the yep. recorded version. I was like, and it wasn't even like Dave Aberzies who like I had just watched like Kill It, yep. who arguably yep. had too many splash symbols. But you know, at the time. <laughs> and lots of diddles. <laughs> yeah. But it, at the time it was exciting. And, uh, yeah. And then I never got into, after that, I just kind of like turned my back on Pearl Jam. But, you know, they have Matt Cameron now, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I remember going home from basketball practice just to tape that unplugged on the VHS. And I probably watched it every day for four or five years. I think it's their best, it's their best recorded performance still to this day. Yeah, I haven't seen it since, but I would be curious to see it. I, I was that, yeah. I was that way with Nirvana where I just, I just, you know, I would record everything that, that MTV put out of theirs and just watch it and play to it. And yeah, I think that's how you, you learn to play in a band before you're in a band is just playing along to yeah. your favorite bands and playing a set, playing the whole record, you know, like learning. I would get like Nirvana bootlegs of them playing live at Reading Festival for two hours and just play the set. Oh, cool. You I know, never did that. like that's just, cool. it was just, I would sing all of Dave's backing vocals and it's like, I'm Dave Grohl. This is what you do. You know, like, oh, there's backing vocals. That's what the drummer does. So like before, I, so when I joined real bands down the line, I was like, oh, I could, I taught myself to sing backing vocals while playing the drums, like by accident. I never even like thought that's what I was learning. Like I was learning to do this, but it just, 
that's the great <laughs> that's part awesome. of like the formative years of learning a language or drums. Like it's just you're such a sponge, you can just you just do it. Yeah. You know? I mean, think about it. Yeah. So what was your first snare drum? It's so so it was we got it at um there was a drum shop in New York for a long time called the Modern Drum Shop. Mm-hmm. Am I saying that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. Did they sell the collapsible drum yes, kits for a yeah, while? So- yeah, so... They used to make these nesting kits that you'll that yep. pop up on Instagram or social media, where it's literally like they cut the drum in half, and then they almost have like these like bolts on them. Like it's it's yeah, like luggage. Yeah, like it must rattle. I don't know how it doesn't make a lot of noise, but I, I yeah, I grew up in New York City, which is not the easiest place to play the drums. And so when I wanted to start taking drum lessons, my dad said, okay, well, we'll get you a drum pad first. You'll take lessons. And then, you know, if you're, if you keep with it and you're doing okay, we'll get you a snare drum. And then mm-hmm. after the snare drum, I got a drum pad kit at the drum pad kit. I got, you know, so there was like kind of dangling these carrots of like how to keep focused, but he didn't want to just get me a drum set right off, right off mm-hmm. the bat. So I had a snare drum kind of first. And then a drum pad set. So I had this like quiet, really crappy drum pad set with like a kick and toms and then an actual snare drum and like a B, oh my gosh. A B and like a B8 Pro ride and like, you know, whatever <laughs> crap hats. And so the snare, I admittedly didn't know much about drums until like the last five to 10 years in terms of like shells and stuff. So this, the thing I remember and I don't, I might be remembering it wrong because I got this drum probably in 1995. I think it was something like it was a, it was either like a pearl shell, but with Remo lugs or the, or vice versa, maybe a Remo shell with pearl lugs. It was something that modern drum shop put together basically. Okay. And the pic, it, it, it was, it, it was wood, and by the pictures, it looks like it was probably about six, six inches and it had like a black wrap on it. It wasn't like, it looked fine. Like I, it was literally my only snare drum from like 1994 when I was probably 13 or 14 into college. Like I went mm-hmm. to SUNY Purchase, I studied um, jazz drums, whatever. And um, it was like literally my only snare drum through college. So it must have sounded okay. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Do you remember what it sounded like? I guess it's gone by now. Yeah, I, unfortunately, when my when my first kind of real band, the Exit, started touring, it ended up becoming my like my you know this this the spare snare drum you keep in the van that you only mm-hmm. use if your main snare breaks. And I had this awesome Yamaha kit that I got at Sam, basically in New York city on 48th street, there was Manny's Sam Ash and on 46th street, there was drummer's world and modern drum shop. And so I got the snare modern drum shop. And then I got a wine red Tama kit rock, like wine red Tama Rockstar kit. That was my first nice. kit. Nice. And I had that through, I had that until I went to college and when it was, Time to go to college. I was like, Dad, I need a real drum set. Like, this <laughs> yeah. is I'm gonna get I'm gonna get like laughed out of like whatever. I don't like I wasn't ever planning to like go into the world of jazz, but you know it was a way to keep playing the kit. And my dad really wanted me to go to college, and I got some good scholarship crap and whatever. So I got this awesome Yamaha. I think it was an it was it was definitely early '80s. It didn't have any like markings on like what like 
brand it, or um, like what series it was. I think it was Beach. Someone was like, "Oh, that looks like a Beach touring kit," but it didn't say that. It just mm. said Yamaha, and it was it was this kind of orangey red, um, twenty inch kick drum, thirteen sixteen toms, and it was just mm. it was just so, it looked great. It sounded great, and that whole kit and my first snare drum and our whole touring van got stolen. Literally the day before a tour. Oh gosh! Like we had that it pa- like an inside job. We, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we had it packed up in New York, and our roadie was in New York. We were the band was out in California doing some like radio press thing. So I had my, we had all of our particulars. Like I had my cymbals and my snare because I was going to be playing on like these rental kits, and mm-hmm. the our roadie was going to drive our packed van to South by Southwest by himself, which is crazy. This is the stuff mm. you do when you're in your 20s. Like he's like, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just drive it. You guys will meet up in, in Austin, Texas. And so I was out on the West Coast with my symbols, with the four symbols I owned and my better, my good, my real snare drum. And so mm-hmm. this, the snare drum in question, um, my first snare drum was in the van with that awesome Yamaha kit. And it just, it's out there somewhere, but I don't have it. They took the whole van, like drove away with the vehicle? Yeah, they just took the van. And oh. so like all of our merchandise, all of our amps, all of our, you know, some of the, all the backup stuff, because we had our main stuff with us in California. Um, so yeah, we had to do a whole tour basically like using the other band's equipment, which, you know, I don't know. I think that was kind of like, I learned to then like play like myself on not my drum kit. So in some ways that was mm-hmm. the beginning of like when it came time to start playing singer songwriter gigs and like, like playing the New York music scene, you don't really need to have a drum kit. Yeah. So right. I then didn't have a drum kit for literally four years after that, because I was just playing places that had shells and I'd bring a snare and cymbals. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but to answer your question, I, I, I remember when I got my first real sounding snare drum that I realized my first snare drum sounded like crap. <laughs> what was like, your first real one? Um, I have it with me. Sweet. This one was made. This was made at by uh, Drummer's World, which was on Forty Six and Tenth. No, no, it's Forty Six and Seventh, and um, it's a wood snare, six and a half. And they, it's a custom custom snare they made. And now when I bought this, when I got this snare, it came with those um, Anton Fig wood hoops, Yamaha oh, wood right. hoops. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's what attracted it, attracted me to it because you know it's a pretty light wood, and then with like these like wood hoops, it just like stuck out. And I remember thinking like that looks so cool. My band mm. was just about to go into the studio to record our first record, and I was like, I'm gonna. I'm going to treat myself and get like a real sounding snare drum. And we did like maybe four or five shows before we got to the studio. And by like show two, I had like totally (laughs) fucked up this wooden hoop. (laughs) Like I never like took into account, like I play 99% like rim shot, like, you know, so like on those wooden, I don't know if you've seen, if people have seen those Yamaha wooden rims, but basically where the lug goes, there's like this circle. So you can access, you know, the lug and like all the ones right in the playing area, I had just like destroyed. So like these like holes where like the lug would come up, the top of the were just like crumbled, like, like shards. <laughs> and so like by like show three, like I'm like, I can't even play. I had to go back to my first snare drum because I had just shattered <laughs> this, this <laughs> you know, and, I, I'm, and I, I'm sure I paid extra to have these stupid hoops on it, but I ne- it never occurred to me like what would happen like playing at like Dave Grohl velocity at like age 22 where I have like the most energy of my life. Yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah, hickory but, beats maple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, this snare drum, so my first snare drum I probably had from like 94 to 2002. I got this one in 90, I think I got this in 2000 or when I went to college, so maybe 90, 
Eh, no, I got out of color. I got it probably in the years 2001. Mm-hmm. And then this was my only snare drum till 2014. Like I just played this snare drum. Oh, wow. Okay. So I kind of considered this my first snare drum and like, yeah, this was the one I just kind of know the best. And Does it still get used. The funny part is when I, so I started playing when I, 2014, I, I got some drums from CNC drums mm-hmm. and that was kind of like my first like artist kit and like custom kit had them like build, you know, stuff out to my specs and stuff. And they're great. They're great. They make great drums. And, um, you know, when I got, um, my snare drum from theirs, this went in the closet and I, I haven't pulled it out until right now. So really? I haven't, I haven't even played it since I got my first CNC snare, which was probably 2014. Um, wow, you got to take that thing to the studio today. I know that's what I was going to do. <laughs> and I was going to do that, except I got a, literally a new snare drum in the mail today. And I was like, well, I could either take this first snare drum because I had to walk to my studio is like three blocks away. And I all, of course, all my cases are there. So I was like, I'm either going to walk down the street with one snare drum or two. And the new one's copper and it's kind of heavy. So I just, I went and played the new one. But I really did want to play both today, but I didn't get to play them both today. So the new one, is it a Q drum? I have that too. Hold on. <laughs> right. So this is the copper gentleman yeah, seven by 14. And it's basically, um, this is what I used on the second Pussifer live stream. Mm, um, okay. Not this exact one, but what I love about this is he did separate lugs mm-hmm. instead of the kind of, you know, there's usually like a lug in the middle and, um, so the first live stream, I, did, I used one of his brass snares, and then afterward, and then during it, I was like, "I want you to build me this exact same snare, and whichever one sounds me better, send me that one." And then <laughs> he, he just trusted him the, to do that. <laughs> well, and then he just sent me the actual snare, like because like, oh, okay. Jeremy's the nicest guy ever. Um, and then when we did this second round. I was like, should I bring the brass snare back out from New York? And he's like, no, we'll just use something else. And we used a steel kit, galvanized steel, which sounded ridiculous. And then um, one of these copper gentlemen. And again, I was like, so can I have this snare drum too? And he's like, no, the snare drum is <laughs> mine, man. I already gave you a snare drum. Uh, but he made me one just like it. And it just showed up and I just played it for like 20 minutes. And I was a little late to the podcast because I was playing it. And uh, I love it. That's a that's excuse for being late for sure. What do you hear in copper that is different from the brass? It ha- it's a little more um, to my ear. It's a little more. What's the word? The it, it's a little darker. It's a little less. Um, it has great body, but it, it's a little less super rock. Like I feel like brass just you can get really raucous and just like epic rock like matt matt cameron like that keplinger Mm -hmm. sound you know like the the brass the q brass snares you can just do that and Mm -hmm. the copper has the copper seems to have like a growl to it where you can really lay into it and has that like low mid fundamental thing going on but it's not quite as bright it's a little more it's just darker um Mm -hmm. when i got out to la to do the live streams for the first week, he basically he, he wanted to build a galvanized kit for us to use because he has a new lug design that he wanted to be in the live stream, and all of his current like shop drums have the older um, lug. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I want to build a kit for this, which was you know so cool, yeah. you know. No, Jeremy, don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> and. Um, and, and and for the record, he built a kit that he like for him. Like it wasn't like I'm building you this. Like you know, I then had him build me a kit. But mm-hmm. um, so for the first week of rehearsals, we actually used Elon Rubin's um, copper kit that he uses with nine inch nails, which cool. was like this is this is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and twenty six, thirteen, uh, sixteen, and 
really loud, really powerful. But I noticed when we got the sh- when we swapped out the copper for the steel, um, similar to the brass versus the copper. This the copper the copper drums sounded great. They're just I feel like they're a little darker, and mm-hmm. um, which works. You know, like it's like a really cool sound. Um, I, I think I prefer the br- the brass over the copper, but um, I know there's like people like Dan Bailey who've talked about like loving the copper recording, like rock mm-hmm. rock and roll stuff. So um, I'm really curious to mic it up. I think I'm going to have to like, I, I'm going to steal a page out of Carter McLean's book and do like maybe like four or five different snare drums and f- film it and record it just because I'm really curious. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never sat down and really did that. I usually... I hear a song and I'm like, okay, I think this snare will work for it. But you know, last, last year when I was doing all the remote stuff, I have one of Jeremy's, um, aluminum gentleman, um, mm-hmm. seven by 14. I just use that all summer. Like I use it on everything cause it just worked. <laughs> really? Um, maybe I swapped it out like twice, but I feel like in this day and age, everyone, the snare sounds that people want right now tend to be not that different song to song. Mm. You know, people. What uh, is it? What is the request? It's that like gushy Fleetwood Mac snare. I feel like ninety nine percent of the time. Thing, right? It yeah. really is, um, and it's a cool sound. Of, you know, it's like what I like about that sound is it's pretty easy for me to dial that in and feel confident with it. Mm-hmm. It's like when people want the the like Matt Cameron like really live sounding drums kit drum kit like out of my like smaller brooklyn studio mm-hmm. that's the part where i'm like cool well we're gonna probably want to use that ocean ways plug in a little bit on this <laughs> right right <laughs> um which is great <laughs> which is great and you know i will say like 85 percent of the of the work i do remotely is for producers i have a relationship with and i kind of trust that I'm very aware that most of what I'm getting hired for usually is to add a human element and they're not, they're not sweating. Like, am I going to get the best drum sounds ever? Because I know at the end of the day, they're going to make it work. They're going to make it sound good. Mm -hmm. EQ wise are going to add a sample if they need to. I'm not offended. They want to have the thing that they can't do that. They can't program, which is just a live drummer and live drummer, um, intuition like what kind of fills do real drummers do you know like Mm -hmm. you can i feel like you can tell when someone's thought of like i'm going to program this fill versus like the ringo fill which is just like an extension of your arms an extension of a thought it's not like the fill of the day on instagram you know like Mm -hmm. no one's playing fill of the days like on hit records you know like if there's a fill it's going to be da-da or maybe, you know, like, right. there's yeah. a reason, like, those fills are, are, like, you know, there's the Max Weinberg, like, ripping off Motown, like, you know, Hungry Heart, you know, like, yeah, yeah. there's only, like, four fills you really need to know to, like, be <laughs> a successful session drummer, you know, so, right. um, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I, I'm really excited to like record. Jeremy just built me this awesome galvanized steel kit that I haven't recorded, but just like the way it feels in my studio, I'm just like, this doesn't feel like anything I've ever had before. Just mm. um, So I, I, I'm pretty sure it's going to sound good because it's basically what we used on the live stream and that sounded incredible. So I'm pretty excited. Everyone listening, make sure you follow. It is Gun Buns <laughs> on Instagram. So hopefully, you can see this kit and these snares in action soon. Yeah, man. One gun, two buns. Yeah. Gun buns. <laughs> Shout out to Johnston. Thank you. <laughs> so I want to wrap it up by talking a little bit about Track Tribe. Yeah. And and kind of what it is because it's to me it's a little um, it's amazing. You're you're producing content all the time, but I'm not really sure. You know what's the what's the business model? It seems like a new a new way of becoming a session musician. Some of that nebulousness, some of that like is is on purpose because there's there's certain things that are in the works that I can't fully talk mm-hmm. about. Um, mm-hmm. The general idea of it is that, um, or like the 
the the story I can tell so far is in 2014, um, some buddies some buddies of mine started the YouTube Audio Library, mm. and it basically basically YouTube was running into the problem of like, you know, people were going on vacation and then like syncing up their vacation footage with like a Rihanna song, and then Rihanna's record label would then have the song taken off the video because copyright mm-hmm. laws and and they were starting to ha- YouTube was starting to have so many content makers making these videos with ads built in that they they le- literally no one could afford to have all these videos getting copyright strikes and then there's no music or the whole video is muted mm-hmm. so my buddies had the idea we should hire a bunch of musicians and build a royalty-free library. Just a bunch of music, mm-hmm. bunch of genres, anybody can use it, and it can't get taken down. Now, what was great about this is they reached out to all their musician friends and, and were like, hey, we just need music. Can you guys make music? And so before I knew it, I had this contract with you know, a few of my friends to make, we made like 450 songs in a year. Of, of like eight, eight, I think like eight genres, and you know, it, a lot of it was like we'd go to a studio for a day and just bang out as many songs as possible. You know, you sit around and like someone starts playing a riff. Like, okay, we, today we have to do ten bluegrass songs. Today we have to do ten songs like the Cars, or you know, I was mm-hmm. online like make I was online like on YouTube tutorials like how do you make a dubstep song? You know, just like. It was like this boot camp of music making and, and production that was, it was such a crazy year. It's like all I did every day, like trying to make one to five songs a day, you know, I'm on. That's so much. I'm on like, <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. I was like on planes to go tour and like making songs in the airport. And um, so, <laughs> but we did it. I mean, it, it just, it, the, basically the idea was like they reached out and said hey can you guys do this and we said we don't know but yes mm-hmm. and we did it and then a few years later um, some of those guys went to Facebook and Facebook was like hey we love the auto library we would love to have a library like do you know who should we hire and they're like well you could hire some of these guys mm-hmm. and so before we knew it you know we had made thousands of songs for these audio libraries and we're like hey we're we're pretty good at this. We should, we should start a, a collective of us and all the people that have been doing this and make our own library. So we've basically, that's kind of how Track Tribe started. It, it, it was kind of including a lot of the people that, was, that were making these music, making the music and, and um, making the decisions of like how to do it. And so the part I can tell you is that's kind of how it started. And mm-hmm. um, we've been slowly building our own library, and we've released to this day we've released a hundred songs on you know Spotify, iTunes, basically ten records, ten songs per record of songs that people can use. Their people can use them in their videos, whatever you know. They're all available on YouTube. They're all in the YouTube mm-hmm. audio library for people to use. Um, so it's kind of been like an experiment. It's, it's, we still, you know, separately and independently work for these companies and make, you know, pretty good money making production music. And then we've also on the side have been building our own library that we're still kind of, we're still kind of figuring out the best use for it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's a hundred songs out there to the public tracktribe.com or just look up track tribe one word. And, um, it's cool songs. It's, it's, it's mostly instrumental. There's a few with vocals. Um, but yeah, we're, we're still kind of the next part of the answer is still kind of, I can't quite talk about, but yeah. And not, not, I, I hate when people say that. It's so, I mean, it's but, business, yeah, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> um, but this, but the, the, the real great part of it is we've just, I've learned how to become a producer, how to mix music, how to master music. Um, and yeah, you're not uh, just playing drums, right? You're writing, mixing, mastering. Yeah. And, and what's been really cool is the stuff I've been doing for Facebook for the last couple, I've made, you know, a lot of the stuff I've done under aliases and, um, but there's about, there's about 50 to a hundred songs in YouTube and Facebook libraries under my name. 
And the cool thing with the f- stuff I've made for Facebook over the last two years and a half is they've, they're now letting me release songs on digital service providers. So just as of last week, I released my first single, which is a song I made for them. And what's cool about the stuff I made for Facebook is um, it's getting used in a lot of branded reels on Instagram. So like mm. if you're a business or a brand on Instagram and you want to say you want to use a song in your stories or your reels, you can now only use uh, music from their libraries. You can't, you can't just use a Rihanna song. Like I could post a story and use whatever song I want that's available in the music section of like a Instagram story. Yeah. But if you're yeah. a branded business partner or whatever, you can now only use songs that Facebook has um, basically bought or made. Mm-hmm. And so what's great about that is I've been making music for them for the last three years. And now a lot of my songs are getting used by like branded content stuff. And so I'm able to see which songs are getting used the most. And mm. now I'm able to now put out the songs I choose out on like Spotify and iTunes. So I like just put out my first single, not ever, but of these songs um, last Friday, it's called pressing matter. It's on Spotify and iTunes. Um, but yeah, I'm, it's, it's exciting. Cause over the next like six months, I'm going to be releasing essentially two or three albums of just songs I've been making over the last few years, but songs mm. that I feel like define that, like, I feel like, Oh, this like represents me as a solo artist. Um, so I don't know that might be a new path. I end up going a little, you know, further down, Uh, Or it might just be something I do for fun. And if people check it out, it's cool. Um, I'd love to like play live, play like my own music live. That's kind of still a goal that, you know, now that like shows are actually happening, I might actually be able to try out. Would you be up front or playing drums? I would definitely be behind the drum kit. It's, it's all instrumental music. So, you know, I don't want to do a thing where it's just drums and me pressing play on a computer. It'd be great yeah. to have like a skeleton band and have some tracks and play some stuff on keys. And but um, you know, it would be it would be along the lines of like a fortet or you know, caribou like electronic leaning artists that incorporate some live instruments. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I don't know. That That's killer. So you can find it under your name, Gunnar Olson. Gunnar Olson. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you go to my, if you go to gun buns on Instagram, that's kind of my hub of like, that's where most things go. But yeah, on YouTube, Gunnar Olson, you know, I, there's, it's kind of starting to be a lot of everything. It's like footage of me playing with Pussifer and then footage of my singles. And, um, so, but yeah, I don't know. I'm having fun doing everything. And the response has been pretty cool. Um, for all that stuff too. So I don't know, maybe, maybe there'll be more of it is what I'm saying. Yeah. Keep killing it, man. It's been inspiring to watch the past couple of years between Springsteen and Pussifer and then track tribe. I'm like, this dude's taking over. Look out everybody. Oh, thanks man. <laughs> well, you, you and, and Mike were great, you know, early, um, cheerleaders of that stuff. So that was, that's been appreciated and it's, yeah, it's good to catch up. I'm glad you, I'm glad you're back on the pod waves. Yeah. Yeah, you can thank Ben over at Big Fat Snare Drum for bringing me back. Oh, he man. let me quit. I can't say enough good stuff about Ben over at Big Fat Snare Drum, but I won't because whatever. He's too handsome. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Maybe that's why I'm mean to him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gunnar, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Hopefully, we can bring you back once you get to know this new kit and new snare. We can get some samples dropped in, but... Yeah, man. In the meantime, everyone, follow Gun Buns on social media. Go to his YouTube channel. Look up Track Tribe. Check out the new Pussifer record, Existential Reckoning. Uh, is the live streams available anywhere, or are they out for now? They're down currently. Okay. They'll be out sometime. They'll right? be out. Yeah, they'll, it's, yeah. It's like, I, I'm kind of the last to know with all that stuff, but yeah, it'll... Yeah. I mean, there's a couple videos on on iTunes from from the show. Yeah, there's from the first one that we did in the desert, which like looks it basically looks like a, a combination of like live at Pompeii and like close encounters from the third. Con- it's like <laughs> it, it's really cool. Like there's two songs. If you go to the Pussifer YouTube or iTunes, um, there's two songs from that performance that I'm super proud of and just look really cool. There's there's one song that literally we we like had to time it out so the sun, the sun was rising during the song 
Nice. So we like started at like 6.45 a.m. And then by the end of the song, like the sun is coming up over... It, it was just like I, I'm getting chills just talking about it. It was, it was like <laughs> it was like the most memorable moment of my playing career. Just like what am I? It's like basically being on. It looked like we were on Mars or like Westworld. It just it was yeah. so cool. Right on, man. Thanks, well, thanks Mike. again, and I'll uh, talk to you soon. All right, buddy. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Gunner. And then rather than do a segment of myself playing drums this week, I am going to feature uh, a short excerpt of Gunner playing. This is from his, it's taken from his YouTube channel. He is rehearsing with Pussifer. And in particular, he is playing the Q drums kit with the 7x14 Gentleman's Copper Series snare. So go check out the video on his page. Give him a, a like and a subscribe. And speaking of which, if you like this show, please drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. That helps spread the word. Uh, we appreciate all the feedback. Again, hit me up anytime with any ideas, suggestions, or comments. Uh, Mike at DroneFactoryDirect.com. And we will see you next week. So let's uh, let's wrap it up. Here's Gunner jamming out to a Pussifer song um, using the Gentleman Series Copper snare. See ya.